Acts 25, again on page 934 in your pew Bible, listen to the Word of God. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when these days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, This is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it, is, it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case as such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
but I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So reads the Word of God. You ever felt like you're in that story? Wow. So we come this morning to the fourth of five speeches that Paul gives in defense of his life and ministry in these closing chapters of Acts. And also to then the setup of the fifth speech, which we have just heard, as Paul is being introduced before Agrippa and Bernice. Uh, There's a notable similarity between the five, but there's also clear evidence that Paul is considering his audience each time he makes a speech. So we hear something a little bit new and different each time. Not a different story, but just a story told to a different set of people. People who would have understanding in different ways. But there's also clear evidence that Paul is considering his audience there in terms of the charges as well. So today we hear his defense before yet another Roman governor. There will be some similarities then to last time, and therefore Luke's account of it is a bit briefer. Porcius Festus is the one to whom we were introduced back at the end of chapter 24, and as chapter 25 opens, he has taken his seat as the successor to Felix. But we also see Paul introduced to someone who would even be more acquainted with the Jewish faith and Christianity, namely King Agrippa here, beginning in verse 13 and following. And that is Herod Agrippa II. That's who this is. The son of Herod that we met back in chapter 12. And the current member of the Herod family to rule over Judea under Rome. So those are the key players. That's who we're talking about. Let's walk through these two scenes now and consider them uh, as the story and then draw some implications from Paul's actions in this first scene that might prove helpful to us today in some pretty significant ways. And you can follow the outline that's there in your bulletin. You can see that we're going to go through the text in the first two points, Paul's trial before Festus, and then Paul's introduction before Agrippa. But then we're going to consider some implications for us today. All right, so let's move into the text. Verses 1 through 12, Paul's trial before Festus. Festus wasted no time, you can see, uh, connecting with the Jews after being appointed to his office. Look at verse 1. Now, three days after he arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Do you think handling the Jews is a high priority for the Roman governor in this province? Three days after he arrived, he went up to Jerusalem, and the chief priests and principal men of the Jews Uh, They wasted no time either. They laid out their case against Paul, and they urged Festus, verse 3, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem. They're going to try to take advantage of the new guy because, Luke explains here, they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So that old plot from back in chapter 23 must still have been in the works 
I think that probably those guys ate and slept over the two years. They vowed not to, but I'm guessing that they probably did. But the Jews were persistent. They were persistent in this matter. Now, whether Festus was aware of that plot to kill Paul is uncertain. So is the reason why he denied the favor that was asked of him here by the Jews when by the time we get down to verse 9, we see that he wanted to do them a favor. And yet somehow, by God's sovereign intervention, he decided not to send Paul to Jerusalem to be tried there, but to bring Jerusalem to Caesarea. The net result was that the case would be heard there in Caesarea, and due process of Roman law would be honored. We could lay that out. Uh, Commentators do if you read on this passage. Charges needed to be formulated and proven by a prosecutor. Secondly, a formal act of accusation then needed to be made. That's what's referred to here by meeting his accusers face to face. And then third, the case needed to be heard by a proper Roman authority. That was just the principle of due process of law in Rome, and Festus is standing on that as he answers the Jews. Something in that kept him on a human level from granting the favor that they sought. And in, grant, and in not granting that favor, Paul's life is spared again. So verse 6, perhaps as much as a week and a half later, the text says here, Festus went down to Caesarea and the next day took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. So again, he is moving this thing along. He is being diligent with regard to this prisoner that Felix left in prison. Three days after he takes office, he goes to Jerusalem. A day after he gets back, he starts the procedures. Luke records that the charges against Paul were, quote, many and serious, verse 7, but we don't know exactly what they were, and in any case, they couldn't prove them, Luke notes. We get our clearest hint of what those charges may have been when Paul himself responds, verse 8, he argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have it committed any offense. So essentially, it's the same three points that he mentioned under Festus. That he is saying, with all clarity, I'm just not guilty of anything here. There's Paul's defense. But Festus, verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, so here it is again, exact language from chapter 24, verse 27, Speaking there of Felix, Festus said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now this is a strange question coming from a Roman tribune, a Roman judge. It's a a confusing question. It seems like Festus himself may have been confused by Jewish law and just couldn't wrap his mind around how is a death sentence in question here? with what I've heard. But he thought perhaps retrying the case in Jerusalem would would bring more clarity. That seems to be his point here. And Roman law allowed for a judge to set up a group of advisors around him to aid him in coming to a decision. We see that referenced in some ways right here in verse 12. So this may have been Festus's aim. Like perhaps he could 
assist in applying Jewish law, or perhaps the Jews might be able to assist him in understanding what they were so upset about. But in any case, what he did was pose the question to Paul, do you want to take this to Jerusalem? You can still be tried before me there, but maybe we'll get to the bottom of this more clearly. Regardless of that, This question posed to Paul is probably the clearest indication that Festus was not aware of the Jews' plot to kill him. But Paul was aware of it. And he wasn't just going to surrender himself to these murderous Jews. As one commentator put it, even if he was prepared to stand up to lions when the need arose, there was no sense in putting his head into a lion's mouth. He's not tempting fate, if you want to use the vernacular. So Paul appealed to Caesar, we see in verse 11, and Festus agreed, as we see in verse 12. But notice, just a point, and this is what we're going to come back to a little bit later to discern some implications, this section right here. But notice as we pass through it right now, that once again it's the Romans who are being friendly to the gospel and to the church here. The Jews would break any law they needed to in order to lynch Paul. They are proving that with clarity in this progression of stories in these latter chapters of Acts. But Rome consistently is his protector during this time, whether knowingly or unknowingly. They're being used by God to keep Paul alive. Isn't that an interesting turn of events And an interesting expression of judgment, by the way, on the Jewish people. Something that we'll read explicitly in the final few verses of Luke's account here. As Isaiah is quoted, reminding Israel and the Gentiles of the fact that God has blinded their eyes. We'll get to that in due course, though. For now, let's move this on to section number two, or scene number two, verses 13 to 27, and Paul's introduction before Agrippa. Look at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Agrippa and Bernice, as we pointed out last week, were brother and sister, though many at that time suggested it was more than that. And they were the older siblings of Drusilla, the wife of Felix, whom we met last week in verse 24 of chapter 24. Agrippa and Bernice stayed with Festus many days, Luke records here, verse 14. And in due course, the governor laid out his case before the king, verse 14, saying, This is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. Festus went on to explain to Agrippa that he laid out the steps of Roman justice with the Jews, thus refusing to grant the favor that they had asked, and that he accommodated them quickly once they came down to Caesarea. He tells Agrippa, this whole story, verse 17 there. But they didn't have anything that amounted to a capital charge against Paul. That's the point that Festus wanted to make with Agrippa. Rather, verse 19, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, 
and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. It appears as though Festus does not. We don't need to get hung up on this statement. This is just the statement that we would expect from a Roman governor. This is how we would have viewed the matter. This is not a statement of truth. It's a statement of the perspective of the man who spoke it. And Festus just didn't have any idea as a result of that statement, that incongruity, in his own mind, he didn't have any idea how to investigate this charge. That's how it's stated in verse 20. How do you go about proving that a man that's dead really is dead and not alive the way this guy's talking about? But why kill this guy because he says he's alive? It just didn't compute. And you can see that in Festus's response. But Festus said to Agrippa, Paul then appealed to Caesar, and so I just granted it. That's the bottom line. And with this, it was enough to pique Agrippa's interest. I think he enjoyed being talked in this way to the talked to in this way by the governor. So he told Festus that he himself would like to hear Paul. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. What are they most interested in? And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So there's a whole entourage that marched in, very ceremonial, dressed up in their Sunday best. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus then retold his story in the rest of this text, then sought Agrippa's input and hoped that he could figure out what to say to Caesar. That was the bottom line. Paul was going to be sent to Caesar, but just like the, the original tribune sent a letter to Felix explaining what was going on, that was back in chapter 23, well now Festus has to write a letter to the emperor and he wants his eyes dotted and his T's crossed. He's got to figure out what to say. He's caught on the horns of a problem, and that's what we want to unpack a little bit now. So let's move into point number three, some implications for us to consider today and see what's being said here. We'll see what we can learn from this text. And I personally think this is very helpful, especially in conjunction with the last chapter. These two trials before Felix and Festus and the preparation before Agrippa give us something that's really, I think, insightful and beneficial. So we'll get to Paul's speech before Agrippa next Sunday, God willing, coming in chapter 26. But before we go there, I want us now to back up a bit and consider this decision that Paul made to appeal to Caesar in verse 11. Last week we saw that he endured profound injustice in his trial before Felix, and yet he did so with no record of any objection or complaint on his part, no record of anything from Luke either in his narration commenting on what happened. So just injustice upon injustice as we saw in unpacking the procedure of that trial, and yet no complaint. 
that fact was so notable last Sunday that one of, the, one of our takeaway lessons was that injustice does not impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. Something we desperately need to learn because Christians throughout history have been, are, and will be treated with injustice, just as Jesus was. So it's important for us to understand and see in context that principle, how Paul embodied it, how that was just an imitation of how Jesus embodied this principle. Injustice doesn't impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. But now, here... Chapter 25, this week we see Paul asserting his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, defending himself against being unjustly treated at the hands of the Jews. How does that work? What's the difference? Why did Paul appeal to Caesar with Festus but not with Felix? The simplest and clearest answer I can give to you from the text, I believe, is that Festus asked for his input, and Paul answered the question. I think that's the big difference. Now, much hinges on that difference. We learn much through that difference, but that's the difference here. Felix didn't ask Paul. Festus turned to Paul and said, what do you want me to do here, in effect? He posed that key question, remember, in verse 9, that strange question. Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? This is what shows us the difference between the courts of Felix and Festus. Both could see that Paul hadn't broken any Roman law. Both could easily see that. It's testified to, verse 18 here, back in chapter 24, verses 22 and 23. And both were pretty sure that he hadn't defended any Jewish law either, especially to the point deserving death. We see that in verses 19 and 20 here. In verse 27, it's insinuated in the last chapter. Also back in chapter 23, verse verse, uh, 29, in the letter that was sent to Felix, stated clearly. But the primary problematic perspective that didn't result in just an acquittal here once you could see that he's not guilty of Roman law, he's not guilty of, in, before Jewish law, the primary problematic perspective that they also both shared, Felix and Festus, is stated in verse 9 here and verse 27 back in chapter 24. They both wanted to do the Jews a favor. And because of that, they were caught And even though they could see that Paul isn't guilty, they couldn't cut him loose. They wanted to do the Jews a favor. They wanted to placate them. They wanted to keep Jewish uprisings at a minimum in their province because Rome was just really weary of that. That's part of the reason why Felix had been replaced. And now Festus is giving his quick attention to these matters to try to keep Rome satisfied in the way that he was ruling in this province. We could take some time on that, but I'm not sure that's where the prophet lies. I want to turn our focus more to Paul during this transaction. So let's focus on him a bit and see what he did. 
First of all, in his trial before Felix, and even here before Festus, he's not just going to cry foul in the court to save his own skin. He's not going to guard his own personal best interest in this setting, even though he's being treated unjustly. Like Jesus, if the system was going to treat him unfairly, he wasn't going to squeal about it in some cowardly expression of panic. That's just not how a servant of the Lord acts. I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's his letter to Galatians. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I have no fear of death. It's his letter to the Philippians. Paul isn't going to turn coward in front of the court. And he's not just being a, a macho guy either. He's recognizing this could be the means by which God brings me into his presence. I don't fear death. But if asked by a Roman judge, do you want me to try to help bridge the gap between your Jewish accusers and and any decent understanding of justice, Paul's answer would be, justice is not going to be served by going back to Jerusalem, but by going on to Rome. That's going to be Paul's answer, and it was. He wasn't afraid of suffering or death. He said it very clearly right here in verse 11. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. I'm not afraid of death. But if there's nothing to the Jews' charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Certainly not in a Roman court. The meaning of that? What should be clear here is that to be handed over to the Jews is to be handed over to death. And an unjust death at that. Why would Rome do that to one of its citizens? They wouldn't. Matters like these are tried in Roman court, Paul said, so, so we should stay in a Roman court. That's what he's saying. Let's move on to the next level, namely Caesar. That's what comes next. Paul is neither saving his own skin nor is he sticking it to the Jews with that decision. He's been asked for his input and he answered Let's follow due process of Roman law. And that's his answer. Part of Paul's confidence in saying that must surely have come from the encouragement of the Lord back in chapter 23, verse 11, saying that he must testify in Rome. But even so, that's not in the foreground of his answer here. That stands there, but that's not the basis of what Paul is doing at this point. At least it doesn't appear so in the way that Luke has narrated this story. Even so, now we're ready to pick up some of the valuable implications for us today. Implications that help us balance out the input that we received last week when we saw that inefficiency and unfairness and injustice need not impede effectiveness in gospel ministry. Let's balance that out. That surely doesn't mean that injustice is insignificant or that justice is unimportant. We cannot draw that conclusion from the lesson that we learned last week. The word just comes from the same root as the word righteous, 
in Greek. Justice is a grand and glorious part of what we are promised in Christ. It's not unimportant. Justice is part of our inheritance in Christ. What we're waiting for, what we're longing for, what the saints under the throne in heaven are calling out for even now, today, while we worship, is justice. How long before you avenge our blood on the earth? And they're told to wait a little while longer. Why? Because God is nervous about drawing things to conclusion? No, no. Peter lets us know in 2 Peter 3. It's because God is patient, waiting for the repentance of all who will believe. So it's part of our inheritance in Christ, justice is. It's what we're waiting for. It's what we're longing for. Justice is one of the clearest ways to summarize what it means for all things to be set right. Justice is essential to peace. It's essential to shalom. So pressing for justice and fighting injustice is not at all foreign to the gospel. We read that in Jesus' own words quoting or reading from Isaiah 61 as he opened his earthly ministry. He came to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. It's part of what happens when the gospel takes root is that the true justice of God is exhibited for all to see and for all who repent to experience, but also for all who don't repent to experience. Pressing for justice and fighting injustice is not at all foreign to the gospel. In fact, it lies at the heart of the gospel. It lies at the very heart of God. Remember the words of the prophet Micah? He says it as clearly and poetically as any. Has he not told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? But there's even more than bare justice that's part of this picture here. It's not just justice. And there's more than mere due process of law in this procedure as well. Paul is appealing to the law of the land in which he's living and serving God in his day. He's availing himself of the justice system that governs in his time and his place. Historically, his time and place was was a grand season for justice. One of the primary periods that stands alongside our own and our nation in our day, historically. And Paul knew that. He knew that he was living in unique times with regard to the justice that was being experienced by the citizens of the empire in that day. Years before this, he had written to the Galatians in chapter 4 saying, When the fullness of times had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And no one today expounds on what the fullness of times is 
without spotlighting the advantages to the spread of the gospel that were enabled by the Roman Empire. By the Roman peace, Pax Romana, with its common language and the ease of travel, with smooth border crossings from one region to the next, on well-built roads and waterways. And it's just governance. It's body of just laws and just courts. That's part of the fullness of time. The gospel entered that world and reaped the benefits of it. Paul was making use of the providence of God displayed in the Roman Empire, which facilitated the spread of the gospel through the known world of his day. Few nations in history and even fewer empires have known such advantages. But we still know it in our nation today. We resonate with this because we experience a similar kind of freedom, different in many ways, but similar in many ways. Friendly to the gospel, at least historically. And this is where we begin to see some important implications for us in Paul's actions here. They go in two directions, those important implications. So here they are. They go in two directions. First, the more explicit of the two, we should learn from what we see here. We should learn from Paul's example how to use the just laws of our land to facilitate primarily the spread of the gospel not primarily for personal protection or freedom or comfort. Primarily, what we as the church see in our day is a unique gospel opportunity. Not just an opportunity to live a little bit more polished a life than most of the citizens of the world. So many countries of the world don't have the advantages that we enjoy. Which means that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe don't live in places that allow the advance of the gospel like our nation does. And in Jesus' words, everyone to whom much is given of him will much be required question is, are we using our freedoms for gospel advance or for the enhancement of life? That's the first thing we ought to hear. The second implication is more implicit. The first, more explicit. The second, more implicit. We should recognize that when such gospel advantage is gained in the fullness of time type seasons, when we see this, when we see the day in which we live, when we see the day in which Paul lived, we should recognize that, that there very well may be some in the church who are called by God to strengthen and to lengthen that season through service in the governments of the day that God would call some from His church 
to participate in that kind of work, strengthening and lengthening the season that allows such gospel advance. Making and enforcing and interpreting just laws in a society that has that sort of freedom. And doing so not just for the common good, not just for quality of life, but even more so for the greatest good. So that is to say, not just for improving quality of life, but primarily for enabling gospel advance. That's why some in the church could be called in to such service. Again, so few countries throughout history have received this sort of fullness as a blessing from God. But that is exactly what it is. A blessing from God, uniquely distributed here and there throughout history. And how much responsibility do we have in our day because we live at such a time? in such a place. My friends, all of us are called to advance the gospel, but some of us, some of us may be called to engage in or with or around the governing structures of our day to strengthen and lengthen the blessing of religious freedom that has been entrusted to us in our day. There are examples of such public servants all around us. I am not going to start listing names today. I would rather turn to you and say, let's recognize those sisters and brothers in Christ who are already doing this work. And there are many. Find out who they are. Spread their names among us here that we might stand with them in prayer support and in any additional ways that are needed. And let's also pray that our Father would raise up such people among us. Brothers and sisters who are passionate about public service, but who keep the clear gospel as their highest priority for doing so, as the highest priority of their involvement. I believe this is one of the ways that the Lord of the harvest will answer as we pray earnestly that he will send out labors into his harvest field. This is one of the ways that I think he will do it. By sending conscientious, deeply biblically rooted Christians into the public sphere, not for the sake of our quality of life nearly so much, is for the ongoing opportunity for the advance of the gospel through us and among us as a nation. Truly, in the most lasting sense, that is our greatest legacy as a nation. And if you agree, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts and among us. We pray that you would help us keep our minds and hearts straight in our day. 
and to see the unusual blessing that you have given us for what it is and for what it's worth. Help us, Lord God, I pray, like Paul, to stand courageous in our day and not worry too deeply about any injustice we might feel for our gospel witness, but might never miss an opportunity to be salt and light in the world in which you have placed us, sustaining, strengthening, lengthening the expression of just laws that we have a nation, as a nation have, have known for two and a half centuries. And to recognize the unique privilege that we have to give ourselves to such work. For your sake, for the building of your kingdom for the spread of your gospel and as the expression from the church who delights in the providence of God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.